Welcome back to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. In this episode of the podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Tim Congdon, who is an economist and leading advocate of monetarism. I followed Tim's work for over three decades. In the early 1990s, when I was working as a bond fund manager in the City of London, the UK kept interest rates at over 10% in an attempt to make sterling shadow the Deutsche Mark. At the time, Tim forecast that UK interest rates would soon fall from double figures. He based this forecast on sluggish money supply growth that meant, in his view, that a recession was coming. In the end, the Bank of England had to abandon its exchange rate target. Sterling interest rates then fell sharply, and as I had followed Tim's advice, my fixed income clients did very well. Now we seem to be repeating the same, or at least a similar story. Listen on for more. If you'd like to support the running costs of this podcast, you can contribute to the New Money Review Patreon account. You can find details at newmoneyreview.com in the right-hand margin. Tim, thank you for joining the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, your area of work? Okay, fine. Well, um, with regrets, I'm now 72, so I'm a veteran in this. um, I started off working um, on the Times in the early 1970s, uh, I'm an economist. I just started after the uh, Heath Barber boom when you had an explosion in money growth followed by soaring house prices and property prices and then a lot of inflation. And this uh, experience had a profound effect on me. I became what's called a monetarist. I believe that the behavior of the quantity of money is fundamental to um, asset prices, and then general inflation. And these thoughts have seen me through a career which um, migrated from journalism to stockbroking in the city, to management consulting, to advising Charles W. Exchequer, to setting up a research institute at a university. And I'm currently, even at the age of 72, working very hard uh, on an institute called the Institute of International Monetary Research at the University of Buckingham, what we do is we track the relationship between money and, for example, inflation. We've been very successful in the last few years because um, in spring of 2020, um, I said there was going to be a lot of inflation coming up in the next two or three years. I was right. I have to tell you, the great majority of my so-called profession, profession of economists, was completely wrong. Including the central bankers themselves. So why did the central banks fail to spot that inflation was coming? The heart of the problem is that they have been beguiled by uh, interest interest rate only macroeconomics. This is very much from the universities. It's sometimes called the Keynesianism. Um, It's awfully clever, clever. It it seems very sophisticated and, and you can show other people in the university world that you're very clever by, by going down this route. I'm afraid it's all wrong. And um, the old-fashioned principle that uh, if there's too much money created, there's too much money chasing too few goods and services, which leads to inflation, that is correct. Uh, and in addition to that, I would say the other crucial idea, which has been very important, by the way, in my career, because I've been a, an economic consultant to financial institutions and so on, is that too much money also causes asset price inflation. So it affects the price of houses and crucially also affects the prices of stocks and shares. And that's very valuable information. 
Why did it take 13 years of zero interest rates and quantitative easing for inflation indices to No, no. no let's get this clear. Let's we get had asset price inflation. That's absolutely clear. What matters to the behavior of our spending, nominal GDP, as, as we say as economists, and inflation is the quantity of money. Whether there's QE or not is not the point. The behavior of money is what's fundamental. Now, in 2008, 2009, the banks around the world, particularly in the industrial world, the advanced world, were reacting to demands for ever more capital relative to their risk assets, their bank loans. So what banks did was to shrink their balance sheets um, by selling off bonds, by making it more difficult to, 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 to borrow from the banks. And this caused, or was going to cause, the quantity of money to fall. So what the central banks did, and I agreed with them on this, was um, quantitative easing, which meant that the, they bought assets from us, the non-bank private sector, the general public, if you wish, um, which increased our bank deposits, increased the amount of money and offset this contraction that otherwise would have taken place. But overall, if you look at, say, the, the four years to the middle of 2012, the growth rate of money in the USA was about 1% a year, and in the UK, about 1.5% a year. So despite QE, the correct forecast was low inflation or even deflation. That is the forecast I made then, I was right. What happened in spring of 2020 was in very different circumstances. In those circumstances, um, the banks were in fact being let off the hook on, on their possible credit losses in the looming supposed COVID recession, depression, and so on, there was no pressure on the banks to raise their capital asset ratios. And at the same time, the central banks were pursuing these aggressively expansionary QE operations, which caused the growth rate of quantity money to rise to 15% in the UK, to around about 12, 13% in the Eurozone, and to, and to a staggering figure of actually 26% at the peak uh, in the United States. And I could see these things happening in March, April, May 2020. I could see we were going to get these very, very high growth rates of money. I said there'd be inflation. I was right about that too. But in both cases, I was using the same model. But the basic framework of an anal analysis was the same in both episodes. And let's just be clear that it wasn't QE in 2008, 2009, causing inflation in 21 and 22. Oh, no. You know, the lags aren't that maybe long, but they're not that long. So, so Tim, you spotted in the US and the, and the UK that the very high growth of monetary aggregates was going to cause inflation. And you spotted that uh, in the last couple of years ahead of the economic uh, consensus. What is going to happen now? What's happened to those broad money supply figures since the central banks have started? I think it's uh, fair to say that, okay, so what, what's been happening is, as always varies between countries, but in the USA, um, the growth of money has been has stopped really since around about February, March 2022. So now getting on for an 18-month period, there have even been some phases in that 18-month period when the quantity of money in the USA has been falling. And so overall, in that whole 18-month period, I need to check the figures, but I guess that um, N3 broad money, which is what I look at, it is down probably 2 or 3%. 
Um, in the Eurozone, money growth carried on really until autumn of last year. And then here also in the Eurozone, uh, there's been uh, um, falling money, money going sideways. Uh, and um, again, I need to check the figures, but my guess is probably there's been no growth in money uh, in the Eurozone in the last year. And in the UK, similar to the Eurozone, uh, um, some months of the last eight or nine, most months of the last eight have been a contraction in money. Um, the annual figure is probably down to around about nil. Um, so utterly different situation, utterly different uh, from spring 2020. Now, I'm not, I'm not alone, by the way, in the kind of analysis I do. Most of the monetarists uh, have generally, I, I, let me concede this, have, have been, uh, they've jumped the gun in forecasting a recession. Um, I can be guilty of that. We have also been right in saying inflation would come down. It's been correct. Um, but one has to say that economies generally have been more resilient than expected. And indeed, labor markets are still pretty tight in most of these areas in the USA, the UK, the Eurozone, and then places like Canada, Australia, and so on. Asia is utterly different. Japan, Korea, China, utterly different. Um, the uh, um, Where do we go from here? I'm sticking to my guns. We're going into a recession. I think looking back that one of the mistakes was to underestimate the extent to which, say, in early last year, early 2022, um, there was still this overhang of, of excess money, too much money around from the incredible uh, explosion of money that we saw in 2020 and 2021. And in retrospect, I underestimated the importance of that. All the same, we now are coming into periods of a year, 18 months of money going sideways or contracting. This always leads to recessions. And so um, I'm sticking to my guns on that. Things like the housing market. So it's fair to say that interest rates have, are, 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 are close to their peak? Interest rates certainly close to their peak. I think the, the central banks... They don't look at money nowadays. They tend to be very focused only on the labor market. Terrible mistake in my view. Labor market tends to be a lagging indicator. It's important, sure. You do need to look at it. But looking ahead, money, the banking system, fundamental above all. Then also some asset prices, housing market, and then also kind of survey indicators of major capital spending items. There's a lot of survey evidence like that around, and these things are now turning down. Monetarism, uh, as you've described it, uh, has been very much in favour. I remember it was a, it became part of conservative party policy, the government's policy in the 1980s and early 1990s, and then it went out of fashion. What caused it to come into fashion, and why did it suddenly go out of fashion? Okay, um, well, it was really not so much the 80s, it was more the late 70s. And this was as a sequel to the disaster of the, the Heath Barber boom, where I, my career really began. We had inflation in Britain up to a peak of 27% in 1975. And people realized that something was wrong. And a number of people, not just me, a number of people said that there should be more attention paid to the behavior of money, which is completely neglected, by the way, in the kind of rather primitive Keynesian economics that the Treasury and uh, 
some British economists favoured at that time. So we had the growth of monetarism in Britain, the end of the uh, Callaghan Labour government, the 74-79 Labour government, that then rolled on into the early years of the, the Margaret Thatcher government. Um, let's just be clear that the targets, the broad money targets, they began in 1976, they ended in 1985, they did get inflation down. They did get inflation down, all right? Now, they were then dropped in the middle of the 1980s, partly because of debates between the monetarists or the so-called monetarists, partly because the majority of British university economists didn't like them because they, they kind of made um, Keynesian, the Keynesian textbooks out of date. Uh, they superseded the Keynesian textbooks and therefore they made all of this sort of inheritance of thought that was taught in the university. They made it all, all superseded, they made it all irrelevant. Uh, and so in the late 80s, we had another one of these episodes. We had an explosion of money growth. We had a boom in asset prices in 86, 87, to some extent in 88. Um, and then we had a, a rise in inflation and a bust, a bust in the ERM between 1990 and 1992. And in a sense, this is the peak of my career as a, as a commentator because I forecast all that. I was commentating on a weekly basis, certainly producing, producing quarterly forecasts, and basically I got it all right. It all absolutely, it was a repeat, repeat basically of the Heath Barber episode. And I then became... Uh, an advisor on the Treasury panel, advising the Chancellor of in 1990, end of 92, early 93, and I stayed there until the end of the Conservative government in 97. Why, you ask why, given, you know, the apparent correctness of the kind of forecast I was making, they didn't have more impact? Well, it did have an impact. But there is a, a political agenda in all of this, and I think many people, Labour Party, didn't like it. They didn't like the fact that it went along, you know, with that, with privatization, with, with um, freeing up the financial system, and so um, there was a it was very much a rearguard defense of monetarism through the 1990s. Then, as the years went by, we did have macroeconomic stability in Britain. People forgot all of these lessons. The the, the university teachers. Uh, remained there in teaching this rubbish economic, like Keynesian economics. I still regard most of, for example, the, the real source of the trouble isn't so much Keynes, it's really the Samuelson textbook, which is a, a wicked book. But anyway, um, the Samuelson textbook and its successors remain very much what's taught in universities. Uh, and so monetarism has been um, on the defensive. The ideas, the core ideas remain correct. And that's really what I've been saying all through this period. In a sense, the, the, what happened in 2020 was, was, you know, I was very fortunate. But to me, it was absolutely obvious, really, absolutely obvious, really, as late March, early April, that what these central banks were doing, they hadn't got a clue, quite frankly. They were just absolutely useless. And I mean what I've just said. They hadn't got a clue and they were absolutely useless. What about Tim? What about the uh, difficulties in the past in tracking individual money supply measures? I remember from the nineteen eighties there was a debate about whether we should use M three as the target or M four, and there's all, there's 
Goodhart's law that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a reliable indicator. Is it ever possible to get a broad money aggregate that works? Let's just try and answer that question. I want to just think about the world we live in. Suppose you're running a business. What's the most important piece of information you have each week? What's the thing, the figure that you really want to know all the time? I'm sure there are people who run businesses listening to us at the moment. I had to run a business for a time, a business I set up in 1988. It's the, 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 the weekly bank statement. It's the weekly number for the total in the bank deposit. Yeah. Businesses are run off, off the bank statements. They're clear. That is the real world. All right? Suppose you're running a portfolio. Suppose you're running an investment portfolio for an, a life insurance company, for a pension manager. Yeah, there's lots of information you need to, to look at. All the time, we're going to have demands on your cash because you've got to pay out pension beneficiaries, because you've got to invest in a new issue of bonds, because at the same time, cash is coming in. Cash is coming in, say, from takeovers from, or from new inflows of funds. What do you look at as a critical decision variable that what's driving decisions? The bank statements. All right? So let's just get that clear. That is the real world. Mm. It is some measure of bank deposits that is the quantity of money that we need to care about. Not very complicated. Now, sure enough, you think it debates. Do I, as a multinational company, simply look at thinking about Britain, do I look simply at the sterling bank deposit, or do I look at sterling and the money we have in foreign currencies? Because, of course, I convert what's in foreign currencies back into sterling if I want to. Sometimes I've got some, some of my bank deposits available for spending straight away, I've got money available, actually it's out on, I need to, it's, it's out on a six month or a one year fixed rate where I'm getting a rate of interest as long as I keep the deposit there for six months or a year. So I, there's some notice period got to be given before I can use it. So there are different types of money aggregate one can, one can, one can put together because of these differences, because of these various details. Look, that doesn't change the fundamentals, all right? Um, it is some quantity of bank deposits. You ask me what I look at. I always look at essentially all the bank deposits that, that, that are the liabilities of the banking system. Some things I don't include. I don't include, for example, say three or four years certificates of deposit. Um, I generally don't include foreign, forereign currency deposits, but that they need to be looked at in some circumstances. Some people say you should look at some things like treasury bills held because treasury bills can be sold very quickly back into bank deposits, very, very liquid. These are all details. What you could see in March, April 2020 was that any of these measures of money were exploding, any of them, broad money that is. I don't look at monetary base. I don't look at narrow money. Um, these are quite technical topics. I could deal with them if you wish. Goodhart's Law. Charles Goodhart's Well, law. I wanted to ask you, I mean, I don't want to go too much into technical detail, Tim, but I, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about the, the you know, the recent uh, trend in the US, for example, for a lot of, um, I guess, what we can call cash to be held in repo with the central bank. And a lot of that is doesn't seem to be, at least as far as I understand, it doesn't seem to be touching the banking system. It may be money market funds, it may be some other kinds of funds that are 
putting money effectively on deposit with the Fed in a collateralized way. And that's in a, in a, in a Look, can I just say that it's a tentative subject for uh, And also, I wanted to ask you about the effect. Yeah. Let's just get this. In this subject, what this, one of the games is to bewilder people because you're so clever with, with complexity. The guts of it is pretty simple. You run a business of the bank statement. You run a portfolio in part of the ratio of cash to total assets. You're thinking about household finances. Of course, of course, got to think about six months, a year, a year away. Can I keep on paying the the, 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 the interest payments on the, on the mortgage payments to keep make sure I stay in my house? These things. Therefore, you're looking at your bank in, inflows and so on, and what's going out on 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 your bank statement. These things are pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Okay. You then get all of these analysts trying to tell you how clever they are, and they invent, invent another so-called, detail, you know, some sort of detail innovation, financial innovation, or some sort of complexity. Let's be clear that the balances that banks hold at the central bank are not money. The banking system issues money liabilities to the non-bank private sector. That is what the quantity of money is. The cash reserves that the banks hold with the Fed are not money. The banking system is not very important as, as a spender goes into what's called aggregate demand and what Keynesian aggregate demand. Um, the banking system does not hold risky assets. So the bank's cash reserves are important to banks' decisions on their balance sheet management. I accept that. Of course they are, and they're indeed quite important to the rate of growth of money. But they are not money as such. I get, I'm hearing a lot about this stuff at the moment. No, look at M3 broad money. That is what matters. Right. What about, uh, Tim, the shift towards a um, greater proportion of payments being settled in real time, which has been happening in a number of financial systems around the world, and that may have changed the velocity of money. Does that affect the way we should look at broad money aggregates. Yeah, it's very important. I haven't said what I just said, that it is important to watch what's going on uh, in payments mechanisms and the technology of, uh, of finance, technology of banking. Um, the current lot of talk about central bank digital currencies, I must confess, I find much of this talk very difficult to follow and understand. What we generally, but let's just having said that, let's just try and work out what's going on. What we tend to do as, as individuals is we, the ultimate form of payment is banknotes, legal tender. What we do is we leave our money, our legal tender strictly, with banks to form bank deposits, and bank deposit, banks then have a, um, a, a, they help us to make payments. We ask them to make a payment uh, to another party uh, when we write a check, or when we uh, phone our bank and say, please make a payment to so-and-so. And, and the banks have got a clearing system, they've got settlement technology, they've got computers and so on. The banks belong to a clearing system. They themselves clear in central bank money. One of the questions here is, why don't we all belong to this central bank clearing system? Instead of using the banks, why don't we all just belong to a huge clearing structure, a very, very powerful computer system um, that bypasses the banks altogether. Now, obviously, if that were to happen, that would be require a radical reassessment of how money affects economies. I don't dispute that. The question is how far, as of now, 
um, the situation has really changed. I would say it hasn't changed very much. I mean, the banks are certainly worried about um, fintech companies coming along, taking part of the payment scene away from them. They're certainly worried about that. But a lot of these fintech companies ultimately settle across bank account with a conventional bank, with a conventional bank. They're just part of the, the banking system. Um, and I, I think the, the whole idea of central bank digital currency will collapse in the end. I don't think central banks will want to get mixed up with this business, with all the worries about money laundering and doing the right things for customers and so on, which, which affect the banks at the moment. They won't want to get mixed up in this business. So, sure, we need to check what's happening all the time to the payment system. Absolutely, I don't dispute that. Having said that, um, I don't think as yet that anything really radical has changed uh, the, the situation in which bank deposits remain the dominant means by which we pay things, pay for things. Tim, um, what response have you, you, you gave um, uh, some evidence to the Economic Affairs Committee uh, in May this year in, in London uh, yes. at, uh, in, is that the House of Lords or the House of Commons? It's the House remember, of Lords. But, uh, fact, yes. You suggested in your evidence that the Bank of England governor, House of Lords, the Bank of England governor you suggested should be required to explain in his letters to the Chancellor why very rapid money growth or money contractions would not lead to inflation outcomes far from those currently allowed, which is supposed to be around, I think the inflation target is 2%. So what response have you had to that suggestion? Well, uh, of course, we haven't had the um, report from the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee, and um, I don't know whether they'll take my recommendation seriously. They may not. I don't know. Um, I, I'm very much a follower of Milton Friedman in this area. Uh, but I may just say here that Friedman wasn't the only economist to advocate the idea. This is that if we want to have, say, 2% inflation, then we should have, on a regular basis, very steady growth of the quantity of money, essentially the quantity of bank deposits, which is that 2%, plus something for the growth of real output, we hope, although in recent years in Britain that hasn't really happened, but something for the growth of real output, and then possibly something to allow for changes in the use of money, um, generally, which should cause the money growth figure to be a bit higher. So what... Milton Friedman recommended the United States in 1959 was that the growth of money to achieve, broad money to achieve um, price stability in the USA should be about 4%. And I would say for Britain at present, um, the right number is somewhere between, say, 2% and 5%. You know, I, 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 I told you earlier that the, the money targeting system from 1976 to 1985 did get inflation down. Let's be clear about that. It did. And when it was dropped, there was a, another leap in inflation, you know, disastrously. Um, the, um, uh, uh, I suppose we, that we accept that. I suppose you accept that money should be between, between somewhere between, say, 2 and 5% to achieve our objectives. Then... If money growth is, say, 7% or more in a six-month period, 7% annualized, say, so it's 3.5% or more in a six-month period, or if the quantity of money is actually falling, then something's gone wrong, in my view. 
just illustrate that, you know, I said we got up to 15% growth of money in February 2022. At the time, inflation was still relatively moderate, even in February 2022. In the next um, 12 months, inflation soared. The money numbers gave you a good advance warning of, of the inflation coming up. At the moment in the UK, we've got the quantitative money falling, giving an advance warning of uh, um, recession. In some sense, a good thing that inflation will come back down again. And um, it's these extremes we want to avoid. We want to keep money growth at this sort of fairly steady kind of figure of 3 4% a year. I do hope that the uh, House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee do recommend this in their report. Um, you know, the, the governor must explain when there are extreme rates of money growth, either too high or too low. Uh, I don't know whether they will or not. Um, the uh, problem here is that um, if, if, some, if, if, if we don't get back to this stability of money growth, we're going to get this macroeconomic stability and extremes of inflation and deflation. Let's just say before I finish, in the 10 years to the end of 2019, we had, on average in Britain, a growth rate of money of a bit under 4%. We had a steady recovery from the Great Recession and on-target inflation. I don't have to apologise for advocating what I believe in. What I believe in worked. Tim, uh, I want to ask you how you think, uh, how painful do you think the unwinding of the recent uh, credit boom or money boom will be compared to the other ones you've seen in your career, whether it's the well, Barber boom of the early 70s or the Lawson boom of the late 80s? That's a very good question. Um, the Let's just first of all concede. So far, I mean, there's Paul Crookman who despises the kind of work I do. Paul Crookman said that in, in the United States, there might be what he called immaculate disinflation, that you'd get inflation back down quite quickly with little cost in unemployment. Um, in, in this cycle. And can I just say, so far, uh, Krugman has been basically right. I mean, inflation's come back down towards 3%, while it, um, unemployment remains very low, and in fact, many American companies are still suffering from labor shortages. Now, whether that persists, I think, is doubtful. I suspect that the USA will have a recession, uh, but it looks it's going to be a, a relatively mild one. Um, in the UK and the Eurozone, um, I think it's going to be a bit more painful. Um, but this is partly because of the uh, lack of economic, economic dynamism uh, you know, in Europe at the moment. This is partly tied up with demographics. It's partly tied up with too much regulation. Um, but I suspect we're going to have a bit more um, trouble getting inflation back down towards 2% and that there will be a proper recession with two or three quarters of falling output, say, between now and a year from now. Um, so I hope that answers your question. It is true, and this is the good thing here, that inflation expectations haven't increased very much uh, because of what happened in 22 and early 2023. Inflation expectations stay relatively benign down at two or three percent reflecting this relatively you know the good the, 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 the long period of low inflation before that and that the, the, the fact expectations are, are relatively benign then means that um, getting inflation back down should be easier 
Tim, thank you very much for taking the time to chat to me. It's been a very interesting uh, discussion and um, look forward to staying in touch. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this New Money Review podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it or share it on your podcast listening platform. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so using Patreon. Details of how to do so are on the right margin of our website, newmoneyreview.com. Listen in soon for our next episode.